Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, you can follow along through the insert in your bulletin. Uh, There are some Bibles available on the back cart. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can grab one of those, take it home, read it. It's our gift to you if you don't own a copy of God's Word. John chapter 21 is often called the epilogue of John's gospel, and I guess we could say in, in, in a way, it's, it's a reach, I realize, but this is a series continuation that is over a year old. Uh, last Easter Sunday, last Resurrection Sunday, we were in John chapter 20, and I, I know that you all remember that sermon vividly. The points were powerful. They've stuck with you all this year, uh, but uh, we did look at John 20 uh, verses 1 through 31 last Easter Sunday, and we were reminded as we sung about already this morning that the resurrection is real news. It is real news. And so John, the beloved disciple who, this is his gospel obviously, he saw it with his own eyes and he invites his hearers, the readers of his account in verse 31 right before our passage, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life in His name. And the same thing applies to us here this morning. The resurrection is not fake news. It is good news. It is the best news imaginable. And I call you this morning to believe in Jesus, to believe in this news that you might have life in His name. But today as we open up His Word together, I want to go beyond simply pressing this point home. I want to turn to a passage that's truly one of, I think, my favorite passages in the Gospels. I want to talk about what life in His name is like. Let me read a quote I read this week. Few passages in the New Testament, this writer says, are so haunting in their beauty And there can be few readers who remain insensitive to the awe and mystery which pervade it. So I love this passage in part because of the picture that it gives us of the risen Christ. I love this passage in part because of the challenge that it gives us to our faith. And because of the invitation that it gives us to intimacy. Those are the three points kind of wrapped up together. This isn't a passage about proving the resurrection. We certainly could do that. Heidi helped us think through evidence for the resurrection. This is a passage about living the resurrection life. And so if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let's dive right in. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Listen as I read. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to Him, we'll go with you. And they went out, and they got into the boat, but that night 
they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea and the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. One of the first and most vivid memories that I have of uh, the great Pacific Northwest was in the summer of 1993, my first summer living up in this part of the country. Many of you know this. Uh, Those of you who know me know that I didn't grow up here. I grew up in uh, the concrete jungle of southern New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. But my parents relocated up here, up to Linden, uh, after I went to college for my freshman year and moved away from home. And so when I came home my first summer, I came here to a home that I never had experienced before. And my parents, as I think I've told you before, were very keen to make sure that I fell in love with the Northwest, that I saw all that the Northwest had to offer short little Georgia peach named Anna came with me that summer as well for a visit. And one northwest evening while she was here, we went uh, to Birch Bay west of Linden, and uh, we met some of my parents' friends there. We got in one of their little boats. We went offshore and uh, pulled up some northwest crabs and pulled those crabs out of the cage, brought them back to the beach, put them in a propane pot there on the shore, cooked them up, and then ate them right there as we fought off the seagulls. It's one of the most vivid memories I have of beginning to fall in love with the Northwest. And I can't help but think about the vividness of that memory, a memory that my wife shares with me, though she's not here this morning, when I read this passage. Jesus, on a beach eating fresh fish with his friends. It's so, it's so ordinary. It's so real. It's so raw. It's, it's as it should be because this, this isn't a fairy tale. 
This, this, is, this is John's memory. This is one of John's vivid memories of his time with Jesus, and specifically his time with Jesus after Jesus had already died. Without even trying John's recollection of these events, he's proving the resurrection, though he's not necessarily intending to. But more than that, more than this proof of the resurrection through the memory of John, the scene on the beach, the fish brought ashore, and the breakfast cooked fresh. I think John, by way of the Holy Spirit, is showing us something, something more than just he is risen, though that's true. He has risen, and he's appeared to his disciples already. More than just he is God, and he can cause fish to swim into a net, although he can do that, and he did do that. Jesus' actions along the shore taught the disciples something of what life would look like for them now that he has died and risen. And Jesus's, or excuse me, John's recollection of those events and those actions of Jesus do the same for us this morning. You see, I think this passage in John 21 is simultaneously real life. It's this real, earthy, ordinary scene, but it's one that's pregnant with rich symbolism about our life in Christ and about the mission of the church. You know, I feel like when we come to John 21, we so often skip, we quickly rush to Peter's restoration. Do you love me, Peter, to that familiar passage? And that's rich, and this all does lead there, but we're not going to go there today. Maybe we'll go there next week. There's something important and beautiful here, and so I want to sum it up with three brief truths for us to consider and meditate on this morning. The first one's this. The risen Jesus is for the real world. The risen Jesus is for the real world. It was not too many years ago when it seemed as if everything, most everything that you saw on TV, except if it was news, PBS, or sports, was fiction, right? Sitcoms and miniseries seemed to dominate prime time. Who's the boss? MacGyver. That's a glimpse into my childhood right there. Now we have reality TV, right? Now in prime time, we follow real families in their living rooms. We follow real chefs in their restaurants. We follow contractors on construction sites. One wonders about our attraction to such things. But I say all that to remind us When we open the Gospels, we are opening a history book, not just a novel. This is an idyllic scene. It's not staged in any way. This is real life, real ordinary life, and it's beautiful. It's captivating. The disciples had had quite a week, hadn't they? The last few days in particular had been for them an absolute roller coaster of emotions. I'm not sure we can imagine the confusion of their thinking. 
I mean, these guys were reeling, and their reeling takes them from Jerusalem to Galilee, some 80 miles north of where Jesus was crucified. And they're huddling together, wondering what's next. And you kind of wonder what the conversation was like. What they were imagining their future was going to be like. The denier Peter is there. Thomas, the doubter, is there. The sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, they're there. And they're returning to what is normal, what's comfortable. And shoot, maybe, maybe they needed the cash. <laughs> I mean, they were fishermen after all. Maybe they needed some fish to sell at market while they waited for Jesus. Because that's why they were there. Because the angel at the tomb told them, Go to Galilee and wait for him there. Their previous ideas of the Messiah and what Jesus was all about had been shattered and redefined, and now, now he was alive. He was back from the dead. He had appeared to them on Resurrection Sunday. He had appeared again the following Sunday with Thomas. But what exactly does a resurrected Jesus mean for them? And so, John says, Jesus reveals himself in this way. I think that's one of the key words in this passage, reveals himself in this way. It's the Greek word phanero, translated as revealed here or appeared in other English translations. We might also use the word manifested. It occurs twice in verse 1. You can see it there. It occurs again in verse 14. John could have used six other verbs, but he uses this one, and he uses it three times. And it's this word which carries with it a revealing of one's true character. See, Jesus wasn't just showing these guys that he was alive. He had already done that twice. He was showing them, he was assuring them that his presence was for them, that his presence was in their world, that the risen Jesus is for a real world. It's a simple point, but I think a necessary point, because we too often, I think, compartmentalize our lives we compartmentalize our fellowship with Jesus, some of us even making it all about this hour, all about this day, and that's it. This passage reminds us, as his followers, as people of the risen King, to fight that tendency. The risen Jesus is for the real world. Resurrection life is lived in the mundane, not on the mystical mountaintops. Resurrection life is lived in our boats and in our cars, not in monasteries. It's lived on beaches, not in some weird, strange spirit life. Not just on Sundays, but in those cubicles downtown. Not just on Sundays, but amongst diapers at home. <laughs> Not just on Sundays, but in the offices 
up in Everett, not just on Sundays, but in the classroom at school. You get the point. Jesus has come into our world, and He still, He still meets us in our world. Not in bodily form, in the same exact way He did with the disciples on the beach. I'm not saying that. But the risen Christ is here. He's here right now because His Spirit is here. And that's a real presence for the real world. And it's a presence that goes with you when you leave this gym. (laughs) Where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I am in your midst. I will never leave you or forsake you, He told His disciples. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The first point is just a point of encouragement, church. Jesus didn't rise to make your ordinary, mundane lives meaningless. No, His resurrection gives extraordinary power and purpose into everything you do. The risen Jesus is for the real world. That was the beach. Well, let's move on to the catch and simply this, the point here. We need Jesus for everything. We need Jesus for everything. A few years back, I went fly fishing in Montana with several buddies of mine. It was a blast. First time I'd ever done it. One of the reasons it was a blast is because the guy who took us spent the money, I don't know how much it cost, he didn't tell us, but he spent the money to hire professional guides for the rivers. And this guide, not only is a crusty guy, wouldn't stop smoking cigarettes the whole time, but he taught us not only how to, how to cast, not only how to uh, whip that rod in such a way, but he brought us to the exact spots where we could catch fish. It was almost too easy. I almost felt guilty. Without him, I'm afraid the trip would have been incredibly frustrating, would have looked much more, much different. But can you imagine if I was in that boat and I was suggesting to this crusty old guy I was suggesting where we ought to go. Oh, no, I don't think we should go to this pool. I think we should go a little bit further down the river. I think that's where they are. I can only imagine all the colorful words he would have for me if I tried to tell him that. As we jump into this scene, this real-life scene, these career fishermen at the end of a frustrating night... Suddenly a voice through the dim light. They probably can't see Jesus. There's fog. It's early morning. It's not quite light yet. And this man cries out from the shore, Children, do you have any fish? Now Jesus, when he says this, he's not talking down to his disciples. The children, that's translated here as children, the word there, in British, we might, in, in, in British English, we might say lads, or in American English, we might say boys or guys. Hey, guys. Hey, boys. You got any fish out there? That's what Jesus is doing. He's not disrespecting them. He's 
He's calling them with some familiarity, but he's not merely curious either. He's not curious, just like the Lord wasn't curious about where Adam and Eve were in the garden, about what Cain had done. The question is not a question seeking knowledge. The point is to get them to look at themselves, to look at their need, to acknowledge their need. And as you might imagine, thinking about my fly fishing trip, they didn't need a stranger from the beach giving them advice about their craft and about their toil that had lasted most of the night. And yet graciously they obliged, they cast their nets on the right side, and sure enough, boom, there are fish. Their nets were full, and suddenly they remember. Deja vu. John, the beloved disciples, remembers. This same thing had happened before, three years earlier. In Luke chapter 5, Luke records it for us, when they were first called by Jesus to follow him. The same event had happened. And so John declares to Peter, it's the Lord, and Peter instinctively grabs his shirt, and in his excitement, he jumps for the shore. And notice how different If you remember that passage from Luke, notice how different Luke's response to Jesus in this moment is versus what it was in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And here, what does he do? Boom, he rushes to the Lord. You see, a shift had happened in Peter. Peter understood grace like he never had before. What a picture. What a beautiful, real-life picture. But what does it all mean? Does Jesus want to just prove, another, uh, prove by way of another miracle that He is God? Certainly does do that. I think there's more. Jesus is reminding His disciples, Jesus is reminding us here today, not only of His ongoing presence, that the risen Jesus is for the real world, but the risen Jesus is also reminding us of His provision, of grace that He longs to give if we would just ask. When we're at a loss, He has everything we need. When we're at the end of our rope, His grace is sufficient. John 15, John said it earlier, John recorded it earlier, Jesus said it, John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. But this is about more than just providing daily bread. This is more than just about providing fish to be sold at the market. This is about His provision in the mission of the church. You see, in Luke chapter 5, when this had first happened, Luke sums up his account then with Jesus' words in verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so suddenly, 
in this post-resurrection reality. The risen Jesus is here. He's here in their normal lives. And what is he doing? He is providing for them. He is creating for them a picture. He is planting in their minds that just as their nets are filled to overflowing, so will he, as they go out in his name, bring the nations to himself. Now, some have had a heyday with this symbolism. In the history of the church, there's been a lot of speculation about 153 fish. The early church father, Jerome, said that there, just as there are 153 species of fish, so, they, uh, so he will save a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Augustine went a little more complicated. He said there are ten commandments. There's a sevenfold spirit. Ten plus seven equals seventeen. Seventeen is the triangular number of 153, meaning if you add one and two and three and four and five, all the way up to 17, do you know what you get? You get 153. Symbolism is certainly found in the Scriptures. Symbolism in numbers, I believe, is found in the Scriptures. But I'm not certain that there's any significant to 153 fish. I think that John, being meticulous, being the fisherman that he is, he simply counted the catch. Maybe he counted the catch because the catch was going to market to make some funds in order to sustain the ministry. Whatever you think of the 153, the dependence upon Jesus for all things remains, for us individually and for us as a church. It's through our weakness that He shows Himself strong. It's, through, it's the, tre- the treasure that we hold is in jars of clay, Paul said to the Corinthian church, to show that the power is from God and not from us. This is good news. This is good news for our mission together because it's a reminder that we need to be, more than anything else, more than any crafty strategy that we can come up with, we need to be a church that's on our knees, that's recognizing that the risen Jesus who meets us in the real world provides all that his people need. Just one final point, and we'll close here briefly. We've talked about the beach. We've talked about the catch. The final point is from breakfast. And it's this. Jesus invites you to his table. Jesus invites you to his table. Man, we love to eat, don't we? You're looking forward to eating today. Jesus' ministry was full of eating. It was full of eating because a meal together in the Scriptures, and even today, a meal together suggests fellowship. It suggests intimacy. Jesus says, come and have breakfast The invitation to eat is an invitation 
to intimacy, to know and to be known. It's one of the reasons why Jesus commanded his church to be hospitable. As he did on the hillside, as he fed the masses fish and bread, as he did in the upper room with just his band of brothers, he feeds He feeds his disciples. He serves his disciples over and over again. He reminds them that he is what they need, that he is the giver of bread, that he himself is the bread of life. He is what will sustain them. And of course, this isn't the Passover meal that they're celebrating. They already did that. But it's an invitation to fellowship, to intimacy, to union. He's alive, and he's on the beach in the normalcy of their lives, providing for their needs and inviting them to come close to him. The risen Jesus invites you to his table, to breakfast, to coffee, to lunch. That's why we're here on a beautiful Sunday morning and not somewhere else to remember him, to meet with him, to long for the day when we will sit with him as his disciples did face to face over a meal. Are you ready? I am. Until then, may we find strength in his presence, in our mundane. May we recognize our dependence on him for everything. May we rejoice in the union that is ours. Brothers and sisters, fight against the dimming of the light of this morning. Don't let the ordinary in the days and the weeks to come, don't let the ordinary flatten the extraordinary. And don't let the, the, the natural, don't let the natural silence the enchantment of our world. He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beloved one. We thank you for John and for these vivid memories from his experience with you, Lord Jesus, as you called from the shore, as you invited them to eat, as you dined with them and showed yourself to them. We long for that kind of fullness of presence, but we recognize even now, we recognize especially tomorrow morning, Monday morning, as we go back into the grind that you, risen Jesus, are for the real world, that you go with us, that we are all, that you are all that we need. All we have is Christ. And so make us a dependent people. Draw us close to your heart, that we might know that we might be known by you. This we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.